baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. We're in the home stretch now for the 2018 midterm season. Here in California, voters have been asked to answer some pretty big questions for the state, from how to deal with the soaring cost of living to how to best address the state's education achievement gap. And to meet those big questions, we've also seen some big spending and heated campaigning. So with just a few days left now, before this all comes to a close, we're going to set this entire program aside to examine some of those key races here in California to figure out how we got here and what we're likely to see come Tuesday night. I'm Keith Manconi with KCBS, and to help me sort through all that, I'm joined today by two experts in politics. First up, we've got Reed Galen, a political consultant who has worked on high-profile national and state political campaigns. He's also a co-founder of the Serve America Movement, recently formed political party. Reed, thanks for being here. Thanks. And also joining me, we have got Michael Semler, Sacramento State Political Science Professor Emeritus. Michael, glad to have you, too. Pleased to be here. Now, uh, before we get going, I just want to really set the tone. Uh, If you guys could, uh, starting with Reed, uh, tell me a little bit, what is one of maybe the number one thing that you're going to be looking forward to on election night? Well, sure. Thanks for having me again. I think, you know, what will be interesting to see is, you know, California is always sort of a blue wave. Uh, You know, it's, it's been dominated by Democrats in its politics for years. And so whether or not uh, the, in, you know, this, the, the uh, supposed enthusiasm that Democrats are showing elsewhere uh, leads to uh, enthusiasm on the left in California, given that, um, you know, you have a governor's race where it looks like Gavin Newsom's going to win, uh, two Democrats running the United States Senate races, uh, and local hotly contested congressional races. Uh, so that's what I'm looking for, is whether or not uh, you know, the, the measures and the candidates that, uh, you know, are really on the left uh, are a beneficiary of what seems to be a national mood. Uh, and, uh, Michael, what are you going to be looking forward to? Well, I'd second what Reed is examining, because the, what's happening in California is really a reflection of what's happening in the United States. This is, looks like it could be a national campaign, a referendum on Donald Trump, and the question is how far does that extend and whether it really exists here in California, whether there's an enthusiasm gap or division. Uh, between uh, what voters, what we see in polls, and what voters actually do on election day. All right. So just a just something to get the political appetite whetted before we really jump into things. And we do have a lot to jump into. We're going to try to hit on uh, a number of races today. I'm not even going to preview what we're going to talk about. We're just going to jump in and see how far we get. First up, for obvious reasons, we'll take a look at the governor's race. That's the one that is pitting conservative businessman John Cox of San Diego against Gavin Newsom, the former San Francisco County Supervisor and Mayor and two-term Lieutenant Governor. So on the one hand, Newsom is portraying himself as a man with a plan to tackle California's economic inequality through such measures as improving parental care and early childhood education. In California, we have more children living in poverty than any other state in the nation. This is a moral deficit we must close. While Cox is quick to point out that many of California's problems have gotten worse on the watch of Newsom and his fellow Democrats. The Newsom bill homeless camps springing up in every town. 
Well, for seven years, you've done nothing. So, putting the message aside for a moment, uh, polling is consistently putting Newsom ahead of his Republican adversary, often by uh, more than 10 points. So, you kind of have to wonder, at this point, even with this uh, top-two primary system, how big of an impact can a GOP candidate really make on a statewide race uh, for for an office like the governor? Uh, Michael, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think... Uh, um there's certainly a evidence historically that Republicans, moderate Republicans, can do quite well in California. They've done well with Arnold Schwarzenegger. They've done well in previous times. Of course, this is all before this top two primary system has been developed. So today, we'll see. Um, there have been close races, relatively close races, for Republican candidates uh, for statewide office. And certainly measures that Republicans have sponsored statewide have done quite well. Reed, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that given the the uh, severe depression of Republican re- voter registration in the state, I think it'll be very difficult for uh, Cox to win. Uh, look, right now, Republicans are now third in line via voter registration behind the no party preference designation. And so I think that, you know, uh, if as, as the professor said, if it was someone who was more in the mold of a, you know, an environmentally friendly, uh, you know, maybe socially tolerant, uh, business friendly Republican, that might be one thing. Uh, but John Cox has long been a conservative firebrand, and and while he might do better than people say, he's not going to be the next governor. And Reed, I mean, at this point in today's Republican Party, where many candidates feel the need to gravitate towards the the poll of uh, President Donald Trump, is it possible for a more uh, center of the road Republican to make uh, make any headway in a state like California? Um, not anytime soon, I don't believe. I think that, that the biggest issue, even in a top two primary system, uh, is that, um, you know, especially given the fact that the, even even with the top two primary turnout tends to be very, very low, which means that even in a, let's say it was a Republican on Republican race, you're probably going to have more uh, activists, more conservative Republicans show up. So I think at this point, you know, the Republicans, at least statewide, other than, you know, the, the one-off who might, you know, might catch fire because it's a down-ballot race. I think they're going to be in the, uh, in the wilderness for a while. So I don't want to give the governor's race short shrift, but uh, based on the polling and just based on the fact that we do have many other races to get through, we are going to move on. Up next, the race for one of California's two Senate seats. Here we've got 25-year incumbent Diane Feinstein squaring off against State Senator Kevin DeLeon. DeLeon is branding himself as an energetic opponent of the Trump administration and also as an advocate of democratic values. That's a brand that he says contrasts with his opponent. The lack of urgency that has been interpreted as a measured, a moderate approach uh, doesn't work when we are actually dealing with a very unprecedented time in our nation's history. In fact, uh, a very dangerous time. Feinstein, though, counters that her approach has been working well and for quite some time. There is a lot of work to be done for the people, and you have to be able to play a role on the committees to get money for your state, for transportation, for health care, for other things, to see that these bills pass. Here again, we see some lopsided polling numbers uh, with Feinstein leading uh, double digits by many of the polls that I saw. Now, I find this a little bit striking just because we often hear that America's electorate is looking for the anti-establishment candidate. We are in a very anti-establishment moment in American politics. But uh, it seems like this time around, at least, California's voters are embracing the candidate that they've known for 25 years. Michael, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, It is an unusual race. 
because you have these two Democrats. And the, and the second feature of this phenomena is that Republicans are not, are not choosing between these two individuals. They're making a choice by not selecting, or at least in the polling data, to vote for either of these candidates. So, and consequently, any, and there are in fact more Republicans supporting Kevin DeLeon, the more left candidate, the more liberal candidate of the two, because they, there's an anti-Dianne Feinstein uh, view among the Republican Party ever since the Judge Kavanaugh hearings. Yeah, Reed, I'm, I'm kind of interested for your thoughts on that. How big of a difference? I mean, we've seen, uh, as, as Michael alluded to there a second ago, we've seen that in a lot of ways, uh, many more conservative voters are gravitating towards Kevin DeLeon, even though he's branding himself as uh, the more liberal firebrand candidate. Uh, do you think that that has something to do with uh, Feinstein's role in the Kavanaugh hearings? Um, I think it's probably two things. One, it, in the immediate term, it's probably what happened with now Justice Kavanaugh. But I would also say that, you know, uh, Senator Feinstein, as you noted, it has been around for a quarter century. So there are probably a lot of very high propensity or Republicans that vote a great deal who have not cared for her as a, as a public official for a very long time. So, you know, they could have put up uh, Mickey Mouse against Senator Feinstein and Republicans might have voted for. But I think what the professor said is right, which is it's those medium propensity voters or those very, very, very uh, right wing Republicans who just won't have anything to do with that race because they have uh, no interest in it. I will say that it is an interesting time for Democrats in California where, as you know, having been so dominant, you're starting to see, uh, you know, their ranks cleave a little bit. Clearly, uh, uh, you know, State Senator DeLeon far to the left, relatively speaking, of Senator Feinstein. So I think that's probably as, as interesting as anything in that race. And Michael, what are your thoughts in terms of the strategy that these two uh, candidates are using? Is is there a base in California politics for uh, both of these candidates? Well, there certainly be, we'll, be, we'll see. But Kevin DeLeon tried to emulate the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. And he is successful in being able to to get a, to become number two in this election in last June, surprising a large number of individuals. But you know, it's it's hard to say what will happen to this Democratic Party because I believe the the next generation is just waiting in the wings, desperately, uh, statewide as well as nationally to to take on power. And for the next two years, at least, Democratic Party is going to find this uh, generational shift a major um, problem for them. All right, and we are going to let that be the last point on that one. I was not kidding. When I said we were going to speed through this discussion, uh, we do have a lot to get to. So we are going to move on right now to our next topic, turning our attention to the race for state superintendent of public instruction. Now, this is a race that is worth digging into simply because of how much money has been spent on it. Uh, we're talking about millions upon millions of dollars here. Uh, and this is a post for which I suspect many Californians would be hard pressed to name its current incumbent. That is a. Uh, Tom Torlickson, for those following along at home. So uh, we are going to look at just how this became such a contested post. First, though, uh, let's meet the candidates once again. Here we've got Assemblyman Tony Thurmond of Richmond, backed by the state Democratic Party and teachers unions, who says uh, he has dedicated much of his work to improving the state's education system. I've been able to get things done, been able to give millions of dollars to our schools through the legislation that I've passed and to help create a guaranteed scholarship for kids coming out of foster care to approve the free lunch program for 400,000 kids to help make the first year community college free to help 
provide almost a half a billion dollars for early education. On the other side, meanwhile, is Marshall Tuck, a former charter school executive who is backed by groups working to expand charter schools. Tuck says that California schools need more than what politicians like Tony Thurmond have been able to deliver. Our elected officials in Sacramento have not gotten the job done on public education, and we need real change because the status quo is not working, and our campaign's all about real change for our kids. So another point to be made, and a number of news outlets have made this point, is that the amount of money becomes even more extraordinary, given the fact that this is a position without any independent policymaking authority. So, Michael... Where did this come from? Well, this first of all, the idea of having a superintendent of public instruction is is a curious phenomenon because this individual really doesn't have much power in a, him, him or herself, um, and there is in fact uh, sets the tone perhaps of where the state is going, but that's an issue. So the question really is: this becomes a proxy fight between those who want charter schools and those who want to continue developing public schools or changing public schools. So you have a strong, strong, strong interest on public school uh, lobby to maintain the status quo. Proxy fight. Yeah, I've seen that term applied to this race uh, a number of times. Reed, do you think that that's fair? Um, I think it's fair. It's also interesting that this is technically a nonpartisan race, right? Neither candidate runs. I mean, they're both Democrats, but neither party, neither candidate runs with a party identifier next to their name, which is which is unique. But I think that's also true. You know, the charter school advocates, both statewide and in in the legislature, have been on the march for the past few years. Remember, Tuck ran again, ran four years ago, lost to Torlakson again in another very uh, expensive race. And I think that the California Teachers Association sees this role uh, is, you know, p- part of a domino effect, right? They don't want to lose this because although there may not be a lot of policymaking, you know, you have a platform by which in a state the size of California, you can go anywhere in the state. Maybe you don't get all the media coverage you want, but you have a bullhorn to say, this is how we need to reform education if that's what you believe in. And so I think that's why you're seeing this is that this is, you know, the CTA has been long been the most powerful uh, political force in the state. And I think that they are unhappy with what they see as a trend towards uh, you know, at least in some sectors, uh, a favoring of, of charter schools or at least massive reform. And Reed, um, how receptive do you think California's voters are to that charter school message right now? Uh, is it really just these groups that are pouring money into this campaign, or, or or is this maybe perhaps the time is ripe for this particular message? Uh, I think there's probably some of both. Although, again, you know, this is this is going to be a hotly contested race, and. And, um, you know, it's probably moderate Democrats and Republicans and some independents will turn out for Tuck. Uh, but those died in the world Democrats uh, will be there uh, for his opponent. And, and I don't think that's a surprise. Um, but this is one that's not likely to go away. I think that there are powerful forces and well-funded forces on the charter side who, who believe, you know, as passionately maybe as the CTA does, Uh, in their role in the world, that this is something that California needs. All right. Well, uh, presumably, much of that will not be resolved on Tuesday, but at least we will have a new face at the top. Coming up at about the halfway point for the program, uh, you are listening once again to In Depth on KCBS. Today, we're looking at some of the key races that will play out in California on this midterm election coming up on Tuesday. And to help us do that, we have, on the one hand, political consultant Reed Galen, and on the other, political scientist Michael Semler. Moving on now, we're going to take a look at uh, just a few, just a few of the proposition races making waves this election season, starting with perhaps the most high profile of them all, Proposition 6, 
That is the measure that would repeal SB1, the tax on gas and vehicle registration fees that in turn funds road repairs and public transportation. Uh, We're going to hear from both sides right now of this debate very quickly. On the one hand, we have got the pro side, as in the pro-repealing the gas tax side. They're arguing that the tax is too burdensome on taxpayers and that the state is mismanaging the transportation money that it already has. Vote to repeal the gas tax and then demand that 100% of the lowered gas tax should go into roads. If we do that, we'll increase actually funding for road repairs by $2.3 billion a year. That was Carl DeMaio, chairman of the Yes on Six gas tax repeal effort. Meanwhile, opponents of the repeal effort, like Carl Gordino with the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, say our aging roads and transport infrastructure are in dire need of the investment dollars provided by the tax. Average California motorists pay $739 a year because of the crumbling conditions of our streets and roads and highway system. So it's been widely noted that Republicans were hoping that this measure could be a mechanism to turn out the vote this election season. Based on the polling, at least, it seems like Proposition 6 itself is not likely to pass. But, Reed, uh, how is it doing in terms of energizing the base of California voters that are worried about cost of living issues and also very suspicious of the state asking for more and more money? Well, I I think it's interesting because normally, uh, you know, Republicans and the anti-tax forces have been able to marshal, uh, or up until recently, I should say, have been able to marshal forces uh, of, you know, not only Republicans, but also individual Californians against, you know, additional taxation. I think that in the past, two, you know, couple of cycles, you've seen that that's really coming to an end. Uh, that Californians, um, you know, look, they've already, they already pay very high taxes property-wise. If, you know, wealthy Californians pay very high uh, personal income taxes. Uh, but that being said, you know, California is a state of 40 million people with an infrastructure that was probably built mostly in the, you know, post-immediately uh, following World War II. And so this is a time when these things need to happen. And I think what you're starting to see is that, first, on the political side, it is not being a driver of turnout that Republicans hoped. Uh, Secondly, that the anti-tax message, as it's currently constructed, uh, you know, probably needs to be completely revamped because if it's just going to be Republicans pushing it, there's just frankly not enough of them. And their brand is so damaged to really drive that message effectively. Well, it's uh, be a pretty significant change that uh, Reed is talking about there. Do you see that too, Michael? I, th- I think so, except that I disagree with him on one point. I think this does stimulate the Republicans who they wish to come out to the polls, namely those in the congressional districts. They know, I believe, that um, this is not going to work statewide. But in concentrated areas where Republicans need to stimulate voters to come out to the polls, to to stop that blue wave, this is what this is the measure that they tried. This is the Kevin McCarthy measure to push congressional Republicans forward. Yeah, and you've uh, commented on this before that it seems like both sides are more focused on energizing their base rather than convincing those in the middle. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a problem throughout the country. We've been witnessing in the last month plus that the divisions in this country are so severe and so strong. It's going to be hard for someone to try to meld everyone together when you have a president who pokes uh, the fire a great deal in order to energize his base. It's going to be difficult. And the Democrats are doing similar things or have done things over the last two years. Uh, not quite as severe, but 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 there's it's a it's a country that is now so divided. The question is, where does someone in the middle come from or go to? 
All right, so we're going to leave it on that point and move on to the only other Proposition race that we're going to look at today, which is Proposition 10. Now, if it wins, Proposition 10 would repeal a law that limits the ability of cities and counties to place rent control on single-family homes and newer apartments. So if it passes... That would, in turn, make it much easier for cities to create or strengthen rent control standards. One more time with feeling. Let's hear from both sides on this one. Up first, California Association of Realtors President Steve White opposes the repeal effort. He says tougher rent control would scare off developers from constructing additional housing, housing that is much needed in California. Just the specter of this being on the ballot. Builders all over the state are stopping projects in the planning stages because they will no longer pencil out if, you know, if they're going to have new restrictive rent control. Meanwhile, supporters agree that we do need more housing, but say rent control is a necessary step to ensure affordable housing. Here's Ken Trey, a retired teacher and union leader in San Francisco. You know, until the great day when we've built enough affordable housing, to make you know living in our town reasonable without something like rent control. Rent control is a basic support for so many of the folks in the classroom to simply be able to stay and serve the kids we love. So here again, I do not want to put the cart before the horse and call how this race is going to go, but just based on the polling, this is another proposition that is facing an uphill battle. And to me, if there was ever going to be a time that Californians would support something like rent control, I would think it would be right now, because we do hear day in, day out about the affordability challenges facing Californians. So, uh, Michael, what are your thoughts on why this has not gotten more energy? Well, that's a very interesting question, because not only in Cal the San Francisco Bay Area, but in Los Angeles, housing prices and rent prices have gone up through the roof. And one would suspect that liberals would be supportive of rent control, yet the data suggests otherwise. I think this is an issue that voters are totally confused about, and they're not aware of how, what, how the whole process works. And they are afraid, generally, of anything that looks like control. The word control uh, is a uh, uh, symbol that people use to become fearful of government intrusion. So this is a, a, a very illustrative example of where, what the history of California looks like. Now, the folks that have come out against this are largely business groups, landlords, developers. They have spent big bucks uh, in their messaging against this measure. Do you think that that messaging has anything to do with the confusion you're talking about? Oh, sure. Sure. It's a historical issue. I mean, rent control, even in local communities, have been difficult to pass. So I, I think this is a people have a desire, renters in particular, have a desire to, be, to become non-renters, that is, to become homeowners. And so... Anything that looks like it could constrain or reduce their ability to become wealthier, they're going to support. Reed, what do you see in this race? Well, I, I think I think I think I see a couple of things. One is, a, is someone who lived in San Francisco for five years. Uh, you know, I had I had several friends who had been in their apartments for five or six years by the time we got there, and we're paying what we would think of now as literally pennies a day uh, to live there. I think the other part too is that rent control conceptually might sound good to a voter. But if you're already paying $4,500 a month for your apartment and now someone says, oh, by the way, we're going to freeze it at $4,500 a month, really doesn't do you much good at all. And then I would also say one thing on the confusion issue is as someone who ran ballot measures in California for a long time, remember that confusion equals no on ballot measures. And so you see that the opponents of this are spending, I think, what upwards of $60 million already to make sure that voters are very confused or at least concerned that this is going to provide an outcome that they're not going to be happy with. And, you know, just 
ticking off that number, $60 million, it does seem like there is a pretty concerted effort, a sort of circling of the the, the wagons among some uh, business uh, interests to oppose this. Is this a striking dollar figure uh, to you, Reed? Um, it's not uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because most of the I, I, I'd have to go back and look through their contributors list, but my guess is most of the individuals, and it's probably either individuals or, or big companies controlled by said individuals, have the money to do this. And, and secondly, and maybe looking down the road a little bit, I think this might also be a marker for them if uh, you know the legislature tries to push through a, a you know so-called split role measure uh, either through the legislature or on the ballot in a couple of years uh, to say you know what you, you've tried this and you know when it comes to housing or development. And if you try it again, believe me, we're going to be there for the fight. Closing thoughts on this Yeah, one. I, I second that. This is a, a precursor to the debate over what to do with Proposition 13 and whether the split role is or should or should not be on the ballot and what would happen. This is a measure to and essentially um, pressure the legislature and the new governor to become careful of any any sort of radical changes. Yeah, we should mention that that split role measure just got enough signatures, I think, uh, two weeks ago uh, to qualify for a, a future ballot. So that is another fight that is definitely looming and definitely on a lot of folks' minds here on in California. Uh, and that is going to be the last proposition measure that we are going to discuss today. Obviously, there is a lot more out there that voters should be uh, getting themselves acquainted with. Uh, but we are going to move on now to uh, our last topic, which touches to some extent on national politics. Uh, in this case, of course, Democrats are favored to win back the House of Representatives on Tuesday. And many of the seats that could help them get there are right here in California. In fact, there's about a half dozen races clustered in Central and Southern California uh, that Democrats have a real shot at flipping, including, uh, among a couple of others, the race for the 50th district where Representative Duncan Hunter faces charges over allegations that he used more than $250,000 in campaign funds for personal expenses. So... California, perhaps uh, in a position to uh, play a big role in this national uh, midterm story that we're going to see unfolding on Tuesday night. Uh, Michael, what are you expecting to see there? This is a very interesting set of questions because it's not clear. Everybody is sort of on tinderhooks on both sides as to what will happen nationally. The question is whether this blue wave and how deep is this blue wave or how wide this blue wave or how high this blue wave, whatever the metaphor you wish to use. So so these races are depending upon local turnouts and activities. This is all about feel. This is about whether or not the motivated voter or identified voter will go out to vote on Election Day, pure and simple. And the question is, how do you motivate them? And fear is used by, to some degree, both sides. No, and I agree. And, and, you know, just having... If you think about California, especially in these congressional districts, and I, and I think I think uh, what Michael said is so right on, is that you know you think about it whether or not it's, a, it's the Hunter race or it's one of the contested races in the L.A. market, maybe California 25 in Santa Clarita, or a Bay Area race that might be contested. These media markets are so big that every time you buy a very expensive television commercial, you're literally reaching millions of people who have no idea who you are, nor will ever be able to vote for you. So I think that. It's not just a matter of the the national effort. I think it's Michael's absolutely right. Whether or not the organizations in these districts are able to get out literally door to door, old fashioned politicking, right? Old fashioned politicking, and making sure that these people know. And I think that the Hunter race in particular 
is is a good example of both the fear that people try and uh, utilize because he said basically scurrilous and, and uh, I think patently false things about his opponent, but also, frankly, where the Republican Party is more generally and what it's willing to do to defend itself. So let me just add to this. The most interesting part of that same election, which created the top two, was to create a nonpartisan or commission to redistrict California's legislative <clears throat> and congressional seats. So the illustration is in California, we have real contests for these elections. They're not highly gerrymandered in a way that historically they have been. And so we have really, California congressional seats really reflect the values and views that are articulated across the state and perhaps nationally. All right. And we're going to have to let that be the final point for today's program. Uh, once again, this has been in-depth on KCBS, taking a look at some of the key races in California leading up to the midterm elections this Tuesday. We were joined during this program by Reed Galen, who is a political consultant and also the co-founder of the Serve America movement, recently formed political party. Reed Galen, thank you very much. Thanks. Also joined, of course, by Michael Semler, Sacramento State political science professor emeritus. Michael, really good to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm Keith Manconi for KCBS. Thank you all for listening and see you Tuesday. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 